Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. Let's talk about gender. Los Angeles lawyer Gloria Allred, one of the most famous lawyers in the world and proactive on human rights. I know Ms. Allred a little bit now after all our conversations, and I uh, have a lot of respect for her and a lot of faith in what she does. She held a news conference this past Monday, and she's filed a discrimination lawsuit on behalf of a transgender man because he was, he alleges, denied a haircut at a Long Beach, California barbershop, a barbershop that described itself as a men's sanctuary. Ms. Allred, thank you for taking the time, and thanks for your patience with my, with my, um, whatever that was. <laughs> thank you very much for inviting me, Roy, to talk about this important victory which we had in our lawsuit it was brought by our client rose trevis against hollywood's barbershop and uh, you know in her declaration which was filed with the court in support of our motion for a preliminary injunction against hollywood's barbershop uh, rose stated quote at the time of the events described i was a transgender male with a masculine gender expression uh, I wore my hair cut short, less than two inches long, and then on the afternoon of March 4th this year, I was walking around a business neighborhood in the city of Long Beach, California, with my domestic partner, Laura Lozano, and in honor about 1.30, Laura and I came upon Hollywood's Barbershop and Shaving Parlor. I'd never heard of Hollywood's, but I decided I wanted to get a haircut. So Laura and I entered the shop, and upon entering, I could see that there was a man in one of the barber chairs having his hair cut. The barber cutting the man's hair approached me and asked how he could help us. I stated that I wanted to get a haircut. The barber told me the customers must have an appointment to get uh, to receive a haircut at the shop, and then I asked if there were any appointments available that day. But instead of answering my question, the barber stared at me for a few seconds before stating that the shop does not cut women's hair. I replied to the barber, who says I'm a woman? The barber repeated that the shop does not cut women's hair, and I stated again, who says I'm a woman? The barber then asked for my name and phone number. I provided this information. The barber wrote it down in a book. The barber then told Laura and me to wait and headed to the back of the shop. He momentarily reappeared with another man who also appeared to be a barber at the shop. As the second barber approached me, he tilted his head and looked at me up and down. He seemed to focus on my legs and frowned. He then asked how he could help us. I told him I wanted to get a haircut, and he replied that the shop does not cut women's hair. I said, as I had told the first barber, who says I'm a woman? The second barber stood quiet for a few moments. I became upset. The bar second barber asked for a business card. He started to walk away from me towards the front door of the shop. I followed him and told him that refusing service to me was discrimination. And the second barber told me that the business, quote, has the right to refuse service to anyone, end quote. And he also added the business is an old-school barbershop, and therefore they don't service women. Laura then asked if the reason the barbershop would not cut my hair was because Laura, as a woman, was in the shop with me. And the second barber responded, we do not cut women's hair, and women are not even allowed in the shop. Ouch. So that's what happened to, to Rose. We filed a lawsuit alleging discrimination against the barbershop, and we're happy to officially confirm now that we have achieved all the goals which we announced when we 
uh, announced that we were seeking uh, to achieve certain goals with the filing of the lawsuit. The barbershop has agreed to settle this case, has agreed to a permanent injunction, that's an order, and an entry of judgment prohibiting them from directly or, inviol- or indirectly violating the Civil Rights Act by maintaining discriminatory business policies or practices and refusing to, uh, refusing to offer services to individuals due to their gender or their perceived gender. So you have the news conference on Monday, but the case is now settled. The case is settled. Uh, they also uh, are prohibited from advertising or marketing in any form uh, that uh, a policy of refusing to provide services or accommodations based on an individual's gender or perceived gender they had advertised, Roy, that they were a men's sanctuary, and uh, so they're no longer a men's sanctuary because they can no longer exclude women women or those they perceive to be female. So what I don't quite understand is whether Rose Trevis was presenting herself in the barbershop as a male or female. I, I'm, I'm not sure about that. Or does Rose, that matter? Rose Trevis, and by the way... That's Rose's birth name. Right. Uh, Rose does use a name that, um, you know, more people would identify as male. Okay. That's what, uh, I was a little confused about that. that. Name private, so we're saying Rose and he, but Rose appears uh, as a male. Okay, so they made a decision that they had somebody in front of them who was transgender and didn't fit their, their, um, their profile of the client they would service as a men's sanctuary, they made the arbitrary decision to not service, and I, I, understand, right. I understand why why you would challenge that. Exactly, because you know it's a it's a privilege to be in business. Yeah. Uh, it's not a right, and that's what a license to do business means. It's a privilege, and so if you're going to be in business in California, you cannot discriminate either on account of gender or on account of perceived gender, uh-huh. uh, and. You know, there are many people who are transgender, and, you know, it shouldn't be that a, a, a barbershop or any business, you know, is trying to decide whether a person is male or female. Really, it's in the economic interest of a business as well as in the interest of the public for everyone to be served. Yeah, I want you, uh, Rose, I'm using the name that you used in the news conference and you're yes. using on the air. So Rose Trevis was just asking for a haircut. wasn't asking for anything exorbitant, just asking for what they do. That's all. That's all. Uh, but, you know, as but let me ask you. they say that they can refuse service to anyone, I'm sure a lot of people have seen that kind of sign. Yeah. Um, it's not true. Well, well, let me ask you, is, um, is it an issue for a, a private organization or a private business to say, and I, I know what your answer is going to be, but I, I have to ask it anyway, is it... Is it an issue if the business says, this is what we're doing, this is the clientele we're aiming for, and I'm looking at the, obviously, the gender separation, where either um, or, or an all-men's club or an all-women's club, you can't do that, eh? There's the Canadian in me, eh? Um, you, you cannot do that. Is well, that correct? Um, you know, the question is, uh, you know, is, a, is it a business or is it a private club? Right. The fact in California that... A, that, a, that an entity decides to label itself as a private club yeah. is not going to be conclusive on the issue of whether they really are 
a private club. Well, I guess what I'm asking or you is, if it was a go- if it was if it was all right, if it were a golf course or golf club, because we had the the controversy over the Masters not admitting women members for many many right. years, right? So let's say it's a golf course that has a men's only policy, and Rose Travis walks in and uh, they make the decision that you know this is men only, and we decide who plays, and we're deciding you're not a man, and so you're not playing. They're still they're still they would still be in violation of the law. Well, again, it depends on whether they're a private club or actually a business which is open to certain members of the club. We've had that issue at the Supreme Court in California. Right. For example, we've had the issue with country clubs. Okay. Say they're private, but in fact are often open to members of the public. And I've sued golf courses, I might add, in California um, who don't treat women equally or who exclude them from the golf course. And I've had that with some success. So it really, uh, it really depends on what the situation is. In this case with Hollywoods, um, they've had a web page uh, that depicts a gentleman's only sign. Uh, they've had, um, you know, they've had, there was an article, Real Men Go to Barbers, you know, this kind of thing. Right. Um, there has been, uh, you know, some advertising that we cited that um, that really was well, I, well, I heard you. I heard you in the news conference. Concerned that they that they wanted men. Yeah, I have about thirty seconds. I heard you in the news conference say that part of their advertising was leave the old lady at home. Yeah, well, that was uh, yeah. They said something to that effect in their advertising, and who wants a buxom blonde sitting next to them? I'm paraphrasing, but it was close uh, when they're having a uh, a shave. Um, and, yeah, you want to be able to talk about the old lady. Um, right. You know, this is also stereotypical, but the point is they must not advertise. Now, they, they, they could be in, held in contempt. We would seek to hold them in contempt if they have advertising that would uh, seek to discourage women uh, from going into Hollywood right. and obtaining the service they offer, which would be a haircut. Ms. Allred, I thank you for the time, as always. Anytime. Thank you. All the best. Gloria Allred from Los Angeles, one of the most famous lawyers in the world. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Women's Liberation Front, Wolf, in the United States, is taking the Department of Justice and the Department of Education to court, challenging a law which permits students to use washrooms and locker rooms, they declare fit the gender with which they identify. And Wolf argues, as I understand it, in its case, that it is unsafe um, to women to allow males to enter a female locker and washroom and that sexual assaults have already taken place. Karadansky is a board member of Wolf and media spokesperson for Wolf Litigation. She joins us on The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Ms. Dansky, thank you very much for the time. Um, what, does, what, what, does, um, what does the law that Wolf is challenging specifically state re-entering restrooms and locker rooms in schools based on gender self-identification? Well, first, thanks for having me. Uh, there, there actually isn't a law. What there is is guidance from the Obama administration that was issued in May of this year that purports to reinterpret Title IX, which is a section of our civil rights laws that was enacted to protect women and girls in the educational arena, and it reinterprets sex to include gender identity. Okay. And so what is the, uh, 
what is being done with that um, particular initiative by the Obama administration? What are the school boards doing? What have they decided they need to do under this directive or direction from the Department of Justice and the Department of Education? Well, first, it's important to understand that the administration issued this guidance in May of 2016 with no public notice and comment. So the public didn't have an opportunity to weigh in on this. Never good. uh, That's, uh, sorry? Never good. Right. So that's our first claim, is that it, it violates our procedural laws that require the government to get notice and comment when it wants to reinterpret its own regulations. So that's the first claim. And then the second claim is that we think that this reinterpretation of sex to include gender identity uh, threatens the privacy and safety of women and girls in our educational institutions. And so what is happening, or what what is supposed to happen under the guidance, is that schools and universities that receive federal funding are required to now open up bathrooms and locker rooms, as well as dormitories and most everything that is involved in the administration of the educational system to anyone who identifies as a member of the opposite sex. However, that is not happening because very recently a federal court in Texas uh, issued an injunction to ban implementation of the guidance nationwide. So at this point, we're waiting to see what happens with that ruling that came out in Texas. Okay, but if the ruling is overturned, then if I understand it correctly, universities and schools, school boards that receive funding from the federal government will be required to make locker rooms, washrooms, restrooms, and dormitories open to uh, anyone. So if you declare, if you self-identify, if you're born male, for example, and you self-identify, gender identify as female, That means that you would be then, according to the policies of the boards and the universities, based on the directive from Washington, you would be permitted to, if you're a born male, self-identify, gender identify as female, you would be open to enter um, a women's uh, locker room or restroom. That's our understanding of the guidance. And it's also important to take a step back and, and really understand that Title IX was enacted in 1972 because of centuries of discrimination against women and girls specifically. And what this guidance effectively does is it renders sex meaningless as a legally protected category. See, what becomes confusing to people is we know that North Carolina um, has a law that does not permit anyone to enter, as I understand it, a restroom, that does not conform, that is marked with a symbol or lettering, that does not conform with the gender at birth. So if it says men, then if you were born male, you must use that restroom. If it says women and you were born female, you must use that washroom, restroom. We say washroom in Canada. Um, so, But they have been declared by many people, and businesses of major corporations have left North Carolina and challenged other states that have the same position. They've been declared as being um, uh, homophobic, and and, uh, all sorts of uh, nasty things have been said and written about them. So do you you sense as Wolf essentially agree with North Carolina? Well, to say that humans are sexually dimorphic mammals is not a conservative or liberal or, frankly, even a political position. That's basic biology. And because Title IX 
was enacted to protect the rights of women and girls, we want it to stay that way. It's, in other words, this is about much more than bathrooms. Yeah, no, I know that, but you know where the public focus is. Well, you know, the way that the that the conversation has been happening has, has suggested that that sex-segregated facilities, that insisting on sex-segregated facilities is somehow a conservative position. Mm-hmm. Women's Liberation Front is a radical feminist organization that is dedicated to the liberation of all women and girls. I understand. And, and, and we take the view, which we think should not be controversial, that humans are sexually dimorphic mammals and that maintaining sex-segregated facilities is important to protect the privacy and safety of women. All right, so you're concerned, you're, you're worried about um, males uh, declaring themselves to be gender-identified female as being nothing of the kind and wishing only to have access to areas which have been exclusively and privately uh, for women born female. Yes? It happens. I mean, we know of numerous cases right. in which... I don't, I mean, I don't doubt it. I'm, I'm, uh, clearly, there will be people who would take advantage of it. See, that is an opportunity to be taken advantage of. And to not admit that or accept that is just to be a politically correct fool. So I won't, I won't comment <laughs> on no, whether you don't it's need politically to. I just correct did. or not. <laughs> yeah, I mean... And, and again, like I, I really want to just keep going back to the fact that this is really not fundamentally or, or exclusively about bathrooms. It's, no. it's always described as being about bathrooms. And, you know, there's the, there's the discussion about, you know, who cares where people pee and all of that discussion. Um, this is about the elimination of sex as a legally protected category under Title IX in yeah. the United States educational systems. And look, we think that's a problem. Look, I, I understand there, there's a whole issue about having rights. And I, I'm, I'm for people having dignity and, and human rights and, and feeling like they're part of society and not being um, sort of excluded by some secret handshake or some policy anything ranging from a secret handshake to a policy. But at the same time, while we acknowledge that, we also have to acknowledge that there's a safety factor involved, and there will be people who will take, see, see um, uh, an opportunity to enter um, a women's washroom, a restroom, or, or a locker room as an opportunity to either be a, a, a voyeur or, or worse. And to not, I, I said it before, to not admit that is to be a politically correct fool. So... Well, we don't even have to speculate, you know. I no, mean, we don't. This, this happened um, in Toronto. The University of Toronto created a quote-unquote gender-neutral shower, right. and there were there was a group of boys, males, college students, who filmed girls showering. And the University of Toronto backtracked on its policy thereafter. I mean, we we don't have to speculate about these things. This right. happens frequently. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm I don't doubt it. I, I have no doubt whatsoever, and uh, there's, I don't blame you for bringing, uh, going to court and getting, wanting this resolved. There, there's no way that the Obama White House should have just made the declaration without any public consultation. The, you know, that's not, um, that's not the kind of governance that in a democracy should exist, particularly when there's something that is, you know, is, is very personal and uh, very significant 
to almost everyone has almost almost everyone has an opinion and a view. So, I mean, I heard uh, from a father when we first talked about the North Carolina situation. I heard from a father, I think he was on the air, uh, who said, uh, you know, if my little girl goes into uh, the washroom, the restroom, and she's followed by a man, I'm 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 going to have some concerns here. You know, so I mean, that, and that's just that's just seat of the pants reaction. Right. Right. There was a case in Chicago uh, in which a girl went into a women's room and there was a man in there and he strangled her. And luckily she was able to scream and her mother heard her and they were able to stop it. But there's some really serious cases that we're going to have to contend with. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I hope you'll come back on the show as the, this goes forward. Well, I appreciate you having me. Thanks very much for the time today. Thanks. Kara Dansky. From the Women's Liberation Front, Radical uh, Women's Rights Organization in the U.S. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you ever received a traffic or parking ticket that you know you did not deserve? You know you didn't deserve it. You know you were set up. Oh, I know my friend in uh, in Alberta, the sheriff, is upset with me now. I, I know I said I wouldn't ever talk about fishing holes again, but I'm going to I'm gonna break my pledge. Because I lived in Quebec for 10 years. <laughs> I know they have fishing holes. You know, where the cruiser lurks and you drive by and sometimes at the bottom of the hill on a divided highway and bingo. Right, and you get the, t- the ticket, big ticket, and your options are to fight it or to pay it. And a lot of people just choose the option to fight. I'm uh, to pay. You don't choose to fight it, which is too bad because you can win. In Winnipeg, Daniel Mercer was uh, given a ticket, a photo radar ticket for driving 49 kilometers an hour in a 30-kilometer-an-hour school zone. So Mr. Mercer thought about this, and he's said he'd, you know, been on that stretch of road often. And uh, he knows where the school zone is. And his argument was, I, I wasn't speeding. I, yeah, like everybody else, I increased my speed when I got to the end of the school zone, but I wasn't speeding in the school zone. So he took his photo radar ticket, and then he uh, went online, and he got a Google Street View picture of the exact area where he got the speeding ticket. So he compared the two, and he went to court, and he showed the judge the photographs. And he said... Look at the photograph, Judge. The one that says I was speeding in the school zone. Look, 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 look where that is. Now look at the Google Street View without the car, and you'll see that I was outside the speeding zone, and the Crown ran up the white flag. The Crown attorney said, oh, we, we, we quit. You're right, we're wrong. And Mr. Mercer walked out of the court. And he saved himself $299 for his ticket. Now, when you get a ticket, and particularly if it's a ticket for speeding in a school zone, or, you know, if, there are, if you're driving a construction zone, fines are doubled if you're speeding. 
as they should be, if people are working. Um, but when you get a ticket, if it's not a if it's not a fair ticket, and you pay it just to be, you know, it's expedient, it's easier. I I, I don't have the time to fight this. I don't have the time to go to court. I don't have the time to talk. I don't, I don't have time. I don't have time. Well, you can get other people to fight for you, like points. And we'll be talking to uh, the uh, the manager of points, the owner of the points franchise in Toronto, before the end of this uh, this hour. He's going to be joining us to talk about exactly that. How you can get. Um, points to work for you. Richard Clark will be joining us. Um, because if you if you pay the ticket, you just go ahead and pay because it's, nah, it's easier. Nah, I just, I'll just call, give them my visa number or whatever credit card I use. I'll give them my American Express Platinum number. It's not just the ticket. Mesdames et Messieurs, it's not just the ticket. What happens after that? is that your insurance rates will go up because the insurance company likes to know if you've had a speeding infraction or a moving in violation or you've, you've disobeyed a stop sign or you've driven past a school bus with its lights flashing and clear warnings. I mean, if you deserve the ticket, then you deserve the punishment, the fine. So you're, you're in, if, if you didn't and you pay, it, it's going to affect your insurance. It'll, you'll have demerit points. The whole... Series of dominoes start to drop. So Mr. Mercer was having none of that. And I've always appreciated, I'm going to get in trouble now with my friend in Alberta. Sheriff, I'm sorry, but there are fishing holes. I know it. I saw them. I know it. Maybe only in Quebec. But I've always appreciated when uh, somebody's driving toward me and there's a fishing hole and suddenly there's flashing lights, flashing headlights. And I slow down and the rest of us slow down and defeats the purpose of the fishing hole. And I know there are many people who think you shouldn't do that. And there are many people who believe that legally you're not allowed to do it. That, well, you are. You, you are allowed to flash your lights. You are allowed to uh, warn other motorists. You, been, people have been taken to court and they won their cases. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. We're talking about the uh, the incidents on the road and where you have received fines and um, well, tickets for speeding and other infractions that cost you a lot of money and cause you problems with your insurance and get you to merit points and you're, you're not being treated fairly. Joining me is Richard Clark, who operates Points in Toronto. Points will help you fight traffic tickets. You'll find Points, as a matter of fact, in four of the cities where this program airs, Toronto, Hamilton, London, and Calgary, and in a number of other markets, particularly in the province of Ontario. Richard, thank you for taking the time. Um, you know the story of, uh, of, of Daniel Mercer in, in Winnipeg and, and his using the, um, the Google Maps to make his case in court. Um, it's, is it generally worth it to challenge a ticket? Well, first, thanks for having me on your show, Roy. Um, 
Tickets, yes. Uh, photo radar is a little bit of a different animal because uh, photo radar or any of the photo offenses, which again, I'm, I'm with you on this, I think they're a waste of time as far as road safety goes. It's just a collection of money. But the photo tickets generally are assessed against the owner of the vehicle. So because it's not a driver offense, it generally doesn't go on anybody's driving record. Okay. So because it doesn't go on your driving record, it doesn't have those subsequent effects like yeah. insurance and demerit points and stuff like that. So with the photo radar, it's a money thing. You're, you know, if the fines are high like that, then certainly you may be able to save money by going to court. But uh, certainly I believe that you know, going to court is always a, a, an option for anybody. Yeah, well, I mean, why not? I mean, I, and I don't well, remember. The, sorry. the provinces would disagree with you in some respects because some of the provinces, including Alberta and Ontario, have been going down the road towards amps, where they're going to take away your option to go to court. You know, I heard about that. Yeah. Now, how how do they do that? <laughs> it's beyond me, Roy. I mean, uh, the the general principle of the law, right, is that you have to face your accuser. And well, exactly. They just change the name of it. Instead of calling it an offense, they call it an automatic monetary penalty, <laughs> which, you know, certainly oh. opens up all kinds of windows of abuse, in my opinion. Um, oh, you know, we, like this gentleman here, where he got caught in photo radar. And, I mean, a lot of these photo... Um, radar and photo red light and all this in some of the u.s cities now they're starting to go away with uh, from them because number one what they profess to do is is reduce accidents and what they found is actually increased accidents and also there's some glitches you know that happen as this gentleman discovered there's a glitch here where he used google which is certainly acceptable in the courts you know, google's been determined to be a reliable source for maps and photos and such, so you can introduce that evidence, and uh, this is what happens. You find out that, hey, these machines aren't perfect, you know, and again, policemen aren't perfect, you know. Uh, I know you're talking about uh, the uh, fishing holes and stuff like that, and right. just to come to some of my old associates or current associates' aid, quite often those fishing holes are, are a complaint. Yeah, you're a so, former so, police officer, right? Yes, I am. Yeah. Yeah, so we used to have to go and sit at these fishing holes sometimes and then file a report. How many vehicles did you stop? How many tickets did you? And, then, and that would go through the system back to the complainant to show that, hey, we're, we're responding to your complaints. And sometimes it's just an easy way to get your workday done. Yeah, so. yeah I, I would imagine. I mean, if they expect that you're going to turn in a, whatever the number of tickets is that you're supposed to come back with at the end of the day, well, set up somewhere where you can... I guess ideally, uh, nab as many people as quickly as possible and get it over with. Yeah, and again, when you, you spoke earlier about the four-lane divided highways, right. you know, quite often these would appear to be fishing holes that people think, oh, well, this is why is he sitting here? This is safe. It's open. It's a. But what happens is that when the speeds increase on these, you know, four-lane highways, it's not where they're speeding, but it's the traffic light that's a kilometer down the road. As the speeds increase, people now are unable to stop in the four-second amber, and you get these major collisions at the intersection. So, yeah. I mean, there are always always reasons for this. It's just certainly never fun when you get a ticket. No. So um, the various types of fines, not stopping at a stop sign, is one a friend of mine told me about uh, not long ago. He said he, he, he came to, you know, the ubiquitous rolling stop. He said, he was, I was going like one mile an hour, and he got, he got a ticket. So we've got that one. Passing a stopped school bus. Well, if you pass a stopped school bus, in my view, you deserve the fine, if you actually did that. And driving while your license is under suspension. 
Uh, those are three of the uh, three of the situations that certainly I would imagine that you deal with at points, right? Yeah, almost on a daily basis. Certainly with stop signs, school buses um, during the school year. Certainly we get a lot of those, and there's a big difference between the two. You get convicted of disobeying a school bus, uh, your insurance company cancels your policy. You go right into the high risk market. You've received one ticket. And you go up to, well, in Ontario anyways, you'd be looking at, you know, somewhere between four and $10,000 a year for automobile insurance because you committed one offense. Wow. So there is a difference between the charges you receive and some that appear to be minor, um, failing to pull over for an officer, which is $100 and, and three points. One of those, and your insurance company could cancel your policy. So that's why when people get tickets, they don't, often understand the ramifications of, of a conviction and, it, and it's so varied that my opinion is you always should get advice you know because people that call me with a photo uh, radar or photo red light which is what we have in Ontario now generally I'll give them advice and tell them not to hire me because it's only money whereas somebody might get a what they think is a minor offense and it's their third or fourth ticket and they get a 15 over speeding ticket I'll tell them, look, fight this, because the downside is so huge with your insurance because you've got that one last ticket that put you over the hump. You need to fight that. And we can do things like, you know, trying to ensure that the court date happens after your next insurance renewal so you kind of avoid insurance costs. And, you know, just keeping the officer to task. Did he keep the right notes? Is he able to give the right evidence and, and convict you? So you have that right to force them to convict you as opposed to just you know, throwing up your hands and paying them, which can be an expensive mistake sometimes. So, so this is what you would fundamentally do for, for your clients. Talk, talk to us, give us a metaphorical case. Somebody calls you and they have a situation where you believe they really should uh, be represented if they're not confident enough to do it themselves and they don't have the time. What's a metaphorical situation and how would you handle it? Well, the most common one, obviously, for most people is speeding. So they get speeding tickets, and like in Ontario, for like a G2 license, we'll take an example. We get a, a young person in here, he gets caught speeding at 31 kilometers over the limit. The fine is in the $200 to $300 range. The demerit points are four. But they don't tell you that because you're a G2 license, you're going to receive a 30-day suspension as a result of that. And so now you have on your driving record a four-point speeding ticket and a 30-day suspension. Now your insurance gets canceled. So that young person that has this ticket would come to us, and we'd be looking at first getting rid of the ticket completely, which is not out of the ordinary, but getting the speed reduced from the four-point level down into the three or zero will save him from the suspension. So that's a very common situation that we're involved in, not only just getting rid of tickets, but damage control to save you from the insurance increases is usually the primary uh, goal. So you would then, you handle the case for the client? Uh, usually from start to finish start and, to finish. and quite often without their input. And that's different. You know, some of our clients actually call in and they're, they're not guilty as the gentleman in Winnipeg. I didn't do this. So that is an advantage to us because not only now do we have um, the other issues that come about through the process of the court. Now we have evidence from yeah. our, our defendant to give that contradicts the officer. So that puts us in a much better position to fight the matter through trial. Yeah. Um, but most often we're able to take the matter start to finish without uh, the defendant being involved. We just give us the tickets, give us the story, give us your personal information and what your situation is, and then we go to court and attempt to make your situation better. So I have to share a quick story with you. I was in Quebec. I keep, no, I keep reminding people I was there for 10 years. And I was driving uh, home from, I used to live in the eastern townships, and I was driving home from Montreal on a Sunday night after doing the show. 
It's around 7.30 or so, summertime. And there's no traffic, almost no traffic. Uh, it's like, like nothing. And uh, four-lane divided, major highway. And uh, going down a hill. And uh, going, you know, you get down the hill, you go back up the hill. So I had my crew set about 11 kilometers an hour over the limit. And o- alongside me comes some guy who's got his crew set probably 12 kilometers an hour over the limit. And you can imagine how long it took him to pass me <laughs> with that one kilometer an hour difference approximately. He gets to the bottom of the hill, and he's now got about three car lengths on me. And out of the, uh, uh, of the entry ramp comes the SQ cruiser with every light flashing. Doesn't stop me. Stops this poor guy who was, I swear, going one kilometer an hour faster than me. And I was, I, I was almost tempted to stop, you know, to mm-hmm. offer my two cents worth. And then the little voice in the back of my brain said, don't do it. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. You know, this is where the importance of the courts, though, are. Yeah, exactly. Roy, is that the, having the courts there to keep these officers to task, yeah. I mean, ultimately because their regulatory offenses, speeding is speeding is speeding. Well, I was thinking that that case would be one that would be perfect for, for, for that person to go to you. Well, the, yes, depending on a situation where we look at, you know, the issues, how did the officer catch you, how, what type of equipment did he use, did he right. use it properly. But when you're dealing in Quebec, they don't allow paralegals, which is what I am, right? We have, we're members of the law society here in Ontario, but we're paralegals, we're not lawyers. Right. But you go to Quebec, all of a sudden the price of representation jumps because you, you can't hire a paralegal in Quebec. It can, you have to have a lawyer. Yeah, Richard, in Quebec, the price of everything jumps. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, when you buy a house, you move to Quebec, you get a welcome tax. I'm not making it up. There's, there's the welcome tax. So how do people get in touch with Points in Toronto? Well, in Toronto, you can uh, call me directly at uh, 416- Seven four three zero nine zero nine, or you can go on the General Points website, which is uh, www.points.com, and uh, look uh, through the office locations, and they can find me. And I, my office is in Toronto, and again, we service all of Ontario, basically, and uh, Alberta, and looking to try to get into BC and the other provinces as well. But it's it's difficult; some of them won't allow us in there. So well, you know, and when you when you talk about them. Uh wanting to make it so you cannot challenge a ticket anymore. Yeah, I think that's, 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 that has to be, that has to be, that can't be constitutional. Well, you know, the reason we have the Provincial Offenses Act in Ontario was because years back when they used to have, I believe it was called the Summary Convictions Act, um, there was so much, you know, corruption involved with it that, you know, we had people fixing tickets, we had officers writing tickets just because they didn't like somebody. So <laughs> they brought in these, the Provincial Offenses Act to bring in more standards and oversight. Right. And we forget so quickly. And now we want to go back to where we're not going to have any oversight. And the court really is your only oversight over the police when they're writing charges. If if they never have to give evidence, you know, policemen don't go out there and try to do the wrong thing. But it's a creep, right? You write this ticket and then you write them an extra one. And, you know, it creeps in to to what happens to the public. And when they know you can't go to court, it's... It's a scary thought for me, and I've been on both sides. Well, yes, you have. And I thank you so much for the time. It's been very instructive and very helpful. It's points.com, and for Richard Clark in Toronto, the office 416-743-0911. Thank you, Richard. Thanks for me on your show, Roy. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. 
You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Homework. The little ones are going to be back to school very soon, and they will be introduced to homework, or they'll have their sort of second or third shot at it. For the, uh, the veterans of the schools, the high school kids, you know what's coming. And it's such a polarizing issue. If I talk to people about homework, I will expect to receive a predominantly negative response. Yeah, oh, no, no, let's get rid of it. And great applause for a Texas teacher who made international headlines for announcing a few days ago that she would not issue any homework. Also, Quebec school initiated a no-homework experiment for a year. Great applause for that. But it's not as cut and dried as you might think. Joining me on the program is Dr. Etta Krolevic. She's the co-author of The End of Homework. She's an associate professor of teacher education and program director of graduate teacher education at the University of Arizona South. And in 2010... Dr. Krolovec took a, a leave of absence from the university to be principal of a high school in East Los Angeles. She's also run an alternative high school for at-risk students. Again, co-author of an excellent book, The End of Homework. Uh, Dr. Krolovec, thank you for taking the time. I, 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 this may sound like a redundant question. I hope it's not. What is it that makes the issue of homework so important? It's been around for so long, you'd almost think that it's just ingrained and just accepted as part of the educational schematic, but it's 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 a important issue and it's a divisive issue. Well, I think that embedded in the debates about homework are some very fundamental differences in the way parents uh, see the role of the public school system or the education system uh, in their child's life. And I think there's a lot of parents who are very committed to high academic achievement for their students as the primary goal and see their primary responsibility as uh, providing uh, their students the opportunity for academic success. And those parents often see homework as part of that uh, package. And I think on the other side of the divide are parents who are concerned more about sort of the whole child and they want their children to be happy and to be able to follow their pursuits and their dreams. And academic achievement for many of those parents isn't the primary responsibility of their parenting, but rather building and helping the child come to the development of their full person. And I think those parents view homework getting in the way because they would like to have more control over the time that their children are at home to let their children and help their children develop other avenues of success and other interests. Yeah, and there is a polarizing, um, there's a line between the two. Um, when you, when your book was published, The End of Homework, you were approached, as I understand it, to participate on a CNN debate about ending homework. <laughs> and your, your book really isn't about ending homework, um, but that's how the, uh, the issue of homework was approached, uh, I, I believe, in that, um, in, in that CNN uh, debate. Talk to Tell us about what happened, please. Well, I think that when my book came out, it, it, was, it was the first uh, full-length book to question the value of homework. And, I mean, there had been 
there had been historically movements to try to stop homework, most notably in the 20s and 30s. There was a Physicians Against Homework who argued that homework was bad for children's health and it was bad for their eyes. So th there's, been, there's been this cyclical anti-homework movement, and when our book came out, I think that began another anti-homework movement. And then I think that one of the concerns or the surprises that people uh, talked about was that The End of Homework was co-written with my co-author was a college professor. Here are two college professors who were questioning the value of homework. So I, I think that was a little scandalous at the time. Well, what did, uh, what, what did uh, the, the, the viewers uh, come up with? What were the numbers about, you know, when he finished the debate, what percentage of, uh, of, of viewers felt that homework should be gone and, should, and, and what percentage felt it, sh it should stay? What do you know? Do you do you know what those are? Because I don't remember what they were, but we well, were very saw, surprised by them. Yeah, I saw something like thirty-eight percent was one number that I saw in your, in your, uh, in, in in what I read in in the book. But uh, <clears throat> but it was it was a surprising number. That what surprised me was the number of people who actually supported the uh, the, yeah. uh, the the you know the retention of homework. Well, I, you know, getting rid of homework, I mean, I mean, homework, and I think you started out by saying this, is such a ubiquitous part of schooling. It, it, it's almost at times invisible because it's just what it means to do school. And so when, when, when it is so pervasive, uh, I think it's very hard to begin to sort of be, crack that uh, practice because we just expect it. So parents expect there to be homework right. when their kids come home from school. It's an expectation we have still of schooling. And uh, I think that one of the challenges for the anti-homework movement is to try to help people understand the, the kind of home life that people have in the 21st century, the amount of work that parents are doing. I mean, in the United States, the majority of mothers now are working mothers, and the majority of, of uh, those mothers uh, actually have two jobs. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Let me talk to my guest, Dr. Etta Krolovic, co-author of The End of Homework, associate professor of teacher education and program director of graduate teacher education at the University of Arizona South. As I said, in 2010, she took a leave of absence from the university to be principal of a high school in East Los Angeles. That must have been an experience. Well, you know, it was really a, a great experience for me, and it got me back in touch with the classroom. And I think a lot of us that are in teacher ed were teachers you know, high school or elementary school teachers before, and we oftentimes miss the classroom. Yeah, because that would be a challenging uh, classroom environment. I mean, this only from what I know in, in Los Angeles, about Los Angeles East or East Los Angeles, and I understand that you worked with students to create, and I'm, I'm drifting off the homework thing for just a second, but I think this is significant. You worked with students uh, to, to, to create a disciplinary program. And that was a very, very powerful experience for the students. The students were in charge of discipline. They had a committee. And when a student was misbehaving in the school, they had to come before a student-only committee. And the students worked with the errant student and made 
determinations about what the punishments should be. It was, I think, a great experience for both the students who were on the committees and the, those kids talk about the leadership skills that it gave them, but also for the kids who would get in trouble all the time. They finally had other students who were interested in their success. So yeah. it was a win-win. Oh, no, I can, I can just see that happening, and I can just see students saying, here's somebody who cares about us and who actually involves us into, in the program, which brings us full circle, in a way, to, uh, to, to the homework issue. I mentioned to you when we talked on the phone the other day that I had a history teacher. It was grade 10. And he was a young guy. He walked in, and nobody liked history except me. I was the one, the only student who enjoyed history. And he walked in. He pulled a map down, of, you know, from on the wall, and he said, "Here are three countries: one country on the left, country on the right, country in the middle. The country on the left, the country on the right. They both want to take over the country in the middle. You guys are the country on the left. You guys are the country on the right. You get together. You work out a plan. At the end of the hour, at the end of the, the class, we'll find out what you think, and we'll see who uh, who was closest to being correct. Everybody got engaged. Everybody was involved." And then the end of the class, he said, if you want to do some more of this, come back into the classroom at the end of the school day. Who would have gone to a history class at the end of the school day? The <laughs> class was, Dr. Kulavik, the class was jammed. Nice. Well, you know, when you see engaged high school students especially, it, it for me, is a thrill to see because we don't see it terribly often. Now, this book is the end of uh, homework. Now, you've, you've encountered students who, uh, I don't know if their enjoy is the correct word, but who value homework. You've also encountered students who are high school dropouts in the state of Maine, and they told you that homework was one of the key reasons they dropped out of school. Uh Tell us about both groups, please. What did you learn? Well, you know, from the kids who uh, identified homework as one of the causes that pushed them out of school, I think we learned a tremendous amount about rural poverty uh, at the time. I think we learned about the health care issues in rural communities. Most of these kids had significant health care problems that preceded their leaving school, and they told us stories about how when they came back to school, they had so much work to catch up on, the homework that they hadn't done while they were sick, that they just simply couldn't catch up. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was, I think, a surprise to my research team because we didn't really realize how difficult it was for a lot of these kids in terms of health care and the rural nature of their lives and how much traveling they would have to do when they were sick. So that was a surprise to us, even though we lived in some of these communities. With with the kids who say that homework helped them, look, right, I, I think it would be lovely if every kid in the world had a well-lit place to study at night, well-educated parents, access to the Internet. They could go home and they could sit and do their homework in lovely, quiet settings. But that's really not the world that most of our kids live in today. And I think we have to acknowledge the the lived reality of uh, home life today and acknowledge that uh, homework enters uh, very, very unequal uh, homes, especially in this country. I suspect maybe Canada's in a little better shape when it comes to economic inequality. But, but so if, if you're a privileged kid, homework is a great thing because you can do it and you have parents who can help. If you're not privileged, homework is a challenge. Okay. Paul is in Oakville, Ontario. Paul, go ahead, please. Hi. How are you doing? Good, sir. How are you? Excellent. Yeah, I wanted to um, agree with uh, your, your uh, guest there that um, I think homework is actually a bad idea. 
Um, Michael Moore's recent movie, I think it's called Where to Invade Next, uh, covers uh-huh. it. And he goes to Europe, and he um, it goes to Norway, for instance, which has the highest caliber of education in the world, and they have the shortest year, the shortest day, and no homework whatsoever. Um, I, I think our system actually piles so much on kids that they stress out, and I think they actually earn le- learn less uh, overall. Dr. Krilovic, what do you say? Oh, I, t- I totally agree, and I wish that we could actually start really studying that. There have been some early studies on the impact of homework on, on stress levels of upper-middle-class kids, and I think some of that homework um, research is going to continue because I think the issue of stress in kids today is enormous. And, I mean, in the United States, add to that the obesity epidemic that we're faced with Mm -hmm. and so homework i think really enters these kinds of uh, physical conditions for kids today and i think it it actually pushes them along you're listening to the roy green show weekends from two to five on am 900 chml um, it's been a while since we've talked with Fran Coombs, managing editor of Rasmussen Polling in the United States. Fran's been really good to us with his uh, time over the last, I guess it's been about a year we've been talking to Fran about the election. So, Fran, thanks for coming back. And the uh, the elections turned nasty over the last week with both Trump and Clinton accusing each other of KKK connections. I mean, I, I'm looking at U.S. mainstream media, and it seems to be doing its best to sink the Trump campaign while not holding Hillary Clinton accountable for the issues dogging her, she's getting a pass. We get to see Henry Clinton eating chocolates while exchanging pleasantries with reporters. While the Washington Press headline this morning, Washington Post headline this morning, is that Donald Trump has a massive Catholic problem, and they cite a poll which has Trump down to Clinton by 23 points. What's going on? Is there is there rampant media bias? Oh, I, I don't think there's any question about it, Roy. I mean, no, they're totally upfront about it. Uh, this guy, Jim Rutenberger, had a piece a couple weekends ago in the New York Times saying flat out uh, that Trump is so evil uh, that journalists have a responsibility to prevent him from becoming president of the United States. So they're, I mean, they're upfront about it. And uh, that's why that's why we don't hear about the issues, unfortunately, in this election, because uh, the media, they're just, you know, they're just looking for anything that comes out of Trump's mouth that they can blow out of proportion rather than discuss the very serious issues that are facing the country. Well, little is being made of the now-demonstrated connection between contributions to the Clinton Foundation and meetings with Hillary Clinton when she was Secretary of State. You bought your way into a meeting with the U.S. Secretary of State, and as Charles Krauthammer, who is no supporter of Donald Trump, pointed out, we now know why Hillary Clinton had a private email server. That's how the connection between huge donations to the Clinton Foundation and the meeting, meeting her as Secretary of State was kept a secret, except U.S. state secrets were on that server as well. But nobody talks about that. Anyway, I'm just saying, I'm sure you're familiar with the Associated Press survey or uh, investigative piece that came out about a week or so ago that said over 50% of her private meetings uh, while she was Secretary of State, uh, over 50% of those people gave money to the uh, Clinton Foundation. So, I mean, it's total pay-for-play. I mean, it couldn't be any more obvious. So, so that doesn't seem to matter to their voters. I mean, let's let's be honest, Roy. I mean, it's not like people don't know this in the United States, but it doesn't uh, it doesn't seem to be sticking to her. So, uh, I mean, we have Clinton saying Trump is a blatant racist, while Trump now says Clinton's mentor was a KKK member. Uh, CNN 
there's a story by CNN that quotes two African-American sisters who support Trump, quoting Hillary Clinton as saying, at the funeral of former U.S. Senator Robert Byrd, who had been a member of the KKK, she described him as, quote, a true American original, my friend and mentor. The CNN story then proceeds to paint Donald Trump as a bigot and features a segment in which they describe Trump's campaign uh, 11 outrageous quotes. And the photographs of Donald Trump are negative images. So we have media bias, but that doesn't seem to be is that it doesn't seem to be registering with a significant number of American voters. Or am I misreading this? Right. Well, first of all, now you know why critics of CNN have called it the Clinton News Network for the last 20 years, though. There's a good example, because that was the same kind of coverage they offered all during the 90s also. But, look, it's very simple. The the Democrats don't want to talk the issues. I mean, we poll on Trump's issues, things like his screening test uh, for American values for potential immigrants, uh, his proposal to build a wall, he he wants to have an end to nation-building, uh, the skepticism with which he uh, uh, views free trade deals. Large numbers of American voters, 60-plus percent, support virtually every one of those things that Trump has, has come out and stood for. Nobody can even remember anything Hillary Clinton has proposed except free college. I mean, that's the only thing I can recall that's hmm. come out of months of her being on the campaign trail. So for people that support the Clintons, for Hillary Clinton, they don't want this to be a debate about the issues. They've got to make it about anything but the issues. And they know that their voters, again, minorities, younger voters, who, dare I say it, are under-informed about the issues, that emotions run high with those folks. So that's why we're going to hear a lot of racism allegations. We're going to hear a lot of sexism allegations. We're going to hear all the isms, big charges coming out of the Democrats' mouths, nonstop for the next couple months because they know their voters are going to vote emotions and not facts. WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange promises to release another Hillary Clinton email dump in October, and I suspect he's going to demonstrate through emails Clinton wasn't able to erase completely that connection we were talking about between her making uh, between her and making donations to the Clinton Foundations and then meeting with her. How significant do you think uh, an Assange uh, email dump in October could be to the election? Well, again, you know, if you look at the history of the Clintons, they've been able to walk by this kind of stuff for 25 years. Right. I mean, I, co- I was you know, heavily involved in coverage of the Clintons all during the 90s in Washington uh, as an editor with teams of reporters covering them. And stuff like this comes out about them all the time, and they just look the camera right in the eye and lie through their teeth. I mean, you know, look at Hillary the other night on 60 Minutes saying that, bas- I mean, basically she completely refuted what everybody heard the FBI directors say That's right. live on camera. That's right. uh, I mean, they, she, they have no hesitation looking you right in the eye and telling you that black is white. Uh, and they've been like that for 25 years, and they've been able to get away with it. What does your polling show? Our polling show still shows it's a very close race, but she definitely has a, a, the edge. She's up 42-38. Uh, but again, you know, they're both hovering right around that 40% mark that you and I have discussed. Uh, I, just, I think, you know, right now... I think the debates could make a difference. The debates could really be the big decider. Yeah, and uh, the first debate is is in is next month. Well, in a few weeks. Yeah, it's about, I want to say five weeks away. Um, so four or five weeks away, and um, 
But yeah, I mean, I, I I don't know that I can recall a time, and certainly in recent memory, when the debates could could really play such a big deciding factor. Because there are definitely a lot of people out there that would vote for a a doorpost against Hillary Clinton just because they can't stand her. Uh, and so you know, she's she's got that Democratic base, but even a lot of that base is not excited, and a lot of that base considers her a dishonest person. Uh, so, but, you know, but then people don't like Trump. There are reasons, obviously, why people don't like Trump either. So, but at the end of the day, people will not vote third party. That vote will melt away because people either want to side with the winner or they want their vote to count. Right. And so, uh, you know, as you said earlier, I mean, Johnson and Stein, I mean, it's fine that they're yeah. in the race, but they're going nowhere. Yeah. Fran, I've got to stop because, you know, the old clock thing. But I, uh, the clock got us. But I thank you so much for the time. I'm looking forward to the debates. I'm looking forward to more conversations with you as we wind our way toward November the 8th. Thanks for the time today. My pleasure, Roy. All the best. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.